This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. And the band sounded hot tonight, aren't they? Welcome in to another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I am Clint Davis, your host, your co-host, I should say. I talk about movies and TV here on the program, things that are streaming in movies and TV every month on this humble little show. And in just a little bit, we'll be hearing from my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak. He talks music, streaming music on the show, which has, uh, well, become a news item as of late. I promise you, this show is full of none of, no anti-vax bullshit on this show, okay? You won't get that here, friends. So if that's your bag, then you'll have to go elsewhere. They don't have to put a uh, disclaimer up at the beginning of our show. Uh, I'll tell you that much right now. Anyway, uh, I urge you to go over and check me out on YouTube at Overdue Review. Uh, I swear, I, I really don't understand how... Anything works like online content. I've been making online content for years and years, for more than you know a decade, uh, in of all mediums. I've done them all, and on YouTube, I'm very like much a sporadic creator. It's really only when I have a good amount of time because I take a lot of time when I do a review there. So it's just random, and it just. But I did a review a couple years ago of Marty, right? The movie Marty, the Best Picture winner. Um, and with Ernest Borgnine. And it's like just lately that video has started to blow up. I'm getting comments like every day on our review of Marty. And it's great because it's people like really appreciating the movie and, you know, liking the, the kind of deep dive I take into the film. Uh, but it's just so random. I don't know. So anyway, if you want to go check out my Marty review among some of the others I've done, I do like one video a year. That's how sporadic I am on YouTube. You can find me there at Overdue Review. Uh, trying to keep the old Overdue Review name alive. That's the website that Andy and I used to run together um, a long time ago before it, uh, it got unceremoniously shut down because of hackers. Hacker activity, and I just couldn't afford to go in and clean it up and, and pay their ransom off. So we had to bid adieu to to uh, overdue review. But anyway, I keep it alive at YouTube, so you can check it out there. You can also find me on Instagram and TikTok at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. And Andy is on uh, Instagram at Andy Sedlak. You can usually find on there, he'll, he'll talk about some things that he's listening to occasionally. 
Uh, it's a lot of Cleveland Browns content, of course. But uh, on mine, on Instagram, you'll see a lot of what I'm watching. I like to show you what I'm watching on any given night. So, uh, so, so find it there. Um, this month on the show, Andy is going to be looking back 20 years ago in music, if you can believe it. Do a little quick math, and you'll f- you, you might want to pull over to realize this, but that was 2002, was 20 years ago. So he's going to go back all those decades to 2002 and uh, going to make you feel very old and very nostalgic. At the same time, he's also going to eulogize a couple more music icons that we lost in the past month. But Andy actually told me, he's like, I can't keep just doing the obituary thing um every month it's so depressing and i've made light of it here on the show because he's always like the way it is i mean you know, i mean the old rock musicians are just getting older the the musicians especially that he's always loved so much they're just all kind of dropping like flies really i mean they're just getting old and uh he's like it's just too depressing man so i think it's finally his post as our official obituary section editor is finally getting to him and i can't say that i that I blame him. But anyway, that'll be uh, what Andy's talking about coming up in his segment in just a little bit. Uh, let me go ahead and light my stogie. I like to do that before we get started. I'm sitting in my closet just outside of Columbus, Ohio. Andy does his bit from his home studio in Cleveland. But uh, I like to light a stogie up in here and get things nice and toasty. All right, we good to go? We're good to go. So since the last time we spoke, um, I actually got to go and see one of my favorite musicians who is on the planet at this point, one of my favorite songwriters. I've talked about her here on the show when we talked about lyrics to live your life by. I brought her up for uh, a couple of different lines that she has written that I that I absolutely adore. I'm talking about Courtney Barnett. She's a singer-songwriter from Australia, and I got to go see her live for the first time. She doesn't tour very often, and with the pandemic, um, she has not been to the United States in the last couple of years, understandably, and I'm shocked, honestly, that she came this time. Uh, so got to see her here in town, and I got to tell you, it was a lot better experience than when Andy and I went to see uh, Bob Dylan up in Cleveland. And if you missed that story, that's definitely worth your time. That's back in episode number 96. So go back a couple episodes uh, to November and check out our odyssey of going to see Dylan in Cleveland. Nothing, No complaints about Bob. He was great, but uh, I was not in the right headspace. But this time, no edibles, and I had a great time going to see Courtney Barnett. She sounded fantastic. So, uh, But speaking of Courtney Barnett, I don't just bring it up because I want to you know, kind of uh, tout her even more, but even though I think she does deserve it. um, That leads me right into our regular segment, the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. And for the 71st entry into the canon, it has something directly to do with Miss Courtney Barnett. And I've often lamented that TV theme songs seem to be kind of less important to everyone these days, don't they? I mean, including the people who make TV shows. It kind of feels like an afterthought, whereas back in the day, it, it seemed like something that really they put a lot of money into and knew that this was a key way you were going to get people's attention and get them to sit down uh, and, and be ready to watch the show or get interested in the show. They're not they they don't have that kind of importance anymore. But 
it's not the case across the board. I don't want to blanket say like nobody cares about TV theme songs anymore because that's just not true. There are some uh, creators who really do still care about it. And there are some great TV show theme songs out there. And we've done a couple of them here on the show, including BoJack Horseman, which was a really good one. We did that one uh, just last year. So, But I want to do one even newer. Some of the streaming networks have taken full advantage of the fact that their content is shown on demand and they've made their show openers longer and better than they could have been on regular TV when, when you were limited more by the constraints of time. One such opener that I've been listening to on repeat lately just debuted uh, in November on Apple TV+, and it's Courtney Barnett's theme song to the animated series Harriet the Spy. I have to admit to you, and I I don't think that this has been the case with any of the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week that I've ever done. Maybe a couple. There might have been a, uh, but it's a very, very small number. I have never seen an episode of this show, though. I have not seen Harriet the Spy. It's aimed at kids who are older than my son. My son's only three, so we watch like young kids shows with him. And I don't have Apple TV Plus even at the moment. My subscription lapsed, and I have not felt a really great reason to need to renew it. So those are just a couple of the roadblocks in my way to seeing Harriet the Spy. But I've damn sure been streaming this song like a hundred times in the past few weeks. Uh, and I immediately knew that I had to feature it in this segment. No, I won't cut my hair and I'll wear whatever I like when I get to be myself. Last month, I highlighted as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week, the classic Spider-Man theme from the old animated series and... I feel like this one from Harriet the Spy shares a lot of common ground with that song. It's punky, it's upbeat as hell, and it has plenty of musical muscle to go along with its catchy lyrics. I love the guitar, the little guitar breaks that Courtney does in this song. She's a tremendous guitar player. It's one of my favorite things about her. Uh, And she really puts that out there in this song. This isn't just a lyrical showcase. Um, it's, It's a big, good guitar track as well. And uh, I actually think this song works better than the Spider-Man song as its own standalone track that you could kind of listen to on the radio or hear it on its own. And it's perfect for the whole vibe and the character of Harriet the Spy because she's kind of this legendary loner and she's a character who plays by her own rules. And that's what the lyrics of this song are all about. Like I mentioned, the song is written and performed by Courtney Barnett. She's a Grammy-nominated singer-songwriter from Australia, in case you aren't familiar with her. Um, Her deadpan delivery and her way of writing about the activities of everyday life have made her a great candidate, I feel like, to write this theme song. And I think it was a brilliant choice to tap her 
because that also mirrors the character. I mean, Harriet the Spy is a character who wanted to write about what was going on in real life. And that's exactly how Courtney Barnett does her songs. She doesn't write about fantastical stuff. She doesn't even write about these great love stories. She doesn't take you into some fantasy world. It's all just stuff that's happening on the block, really. And it's one of the reasons I like her so much. But I think she was the perfect choice for this. Even though you would have thought maybe a New Yorker, because Harry the Spy, you connect with New York, uh, I think going with an Australian in this case absolutely worked. And the song is actually called Smile Real Nice. And it's all about being yourself. If you don't know anything about Harriet the Spy, it's this legendary children's book from the mid-1960s about a girl named Harriet who lives in New York City and wants to be a writer. And she takes to spying on the people around her building and around her neighborhood to hone her observational skills. And the animated series follows her adventures. I guess it's kind of loosely based on the book. It's a more modern take on the story of Harriet the Spy. It stars Beanie Feldstein, who's fantastic. She plays Harriet, does the voice for her. Also, uh, Lacey Chabert is in it, and uh, Jane Lynch as well. They do voice work in this show also. Like I said, I can't say whether Harriet the Spy is worth binging with your kids, but I can say that it has a killer theme song with all confidence. I just want to be Harriet the Spy debuted on Apple TV Plus with five episodes in November of 2021, and it will drop five more this spring to wrap its first season. I think it's the newest series that we have ever featured on this segment as far as like how old a show is. I mean, this show's only at this point been out for two months, and I'm already putting it on as the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. So that's pretty rare. It's rare even for a show that's still on the air to be featured on this segment. Most of the shows we feature are long gone. Um, but this is one that I just, I thought it, it needed to be on here. I think it deserves it because this is a stone-cold rocker greeting you at the start of each episode. And who expects that when they flip on a kid's show? Courtney Barnett's Smile Real Nice, the theme song from Harriet the Spy, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. You know it's a good theme song when it does make you want to check out the show just because you like the song. And that's really what happened. Like I'm like, I would like to actually watch an episode or two of Harriet the Spy because this song is so great. Like it just I want to see how it's used in the show and I want to see, you know, the attitude that it brings into the series. Cause I just think the song is loaded with attitude and character and just a cool, cool track. 
I did want to mention real quick, uh, last month on the Stream Police, I talked about Amazon Prime's The Wheel of Time and told you that I was really enjoying that show. And I said that, you know, I had the last episode, last couple episodes still to go before I could really say whether or not they had landed, stuck the landing. And I've since watched those. The season's over, the first season, and I think they absolutely stuck the landing. I was enthralled by the show. I think it only got better as it went. So if The Wheel of Time, if you're into fantasy television, and I have not didn't read the books, never have cracked any of those books, I would not call myself a fantasy fan whatsoever, really. Um, but I really liked The Wheel of Time, and most, most of it comes down to Rosamund Pike because she is such a strong actor. I think she could carry anything uh, and make it worth your time. But the, the writing really was well done, and from what I understand, it is a very good adaptation, uh, a very good rendering of these books, which there are a bunch of them. There's like 19 books in the series. It's not like one of the... It's not like Game of Thrones where there were only like three books when the series came out, and then, you know, he's still trying to come out with the fifth one or whatever it is. Um, there's already a huge number of books in The Wheel of Time, so there was a lot of good source material to go from. Too much to be adapted book by book into a series, uh, and I just really liked the show, and I look forward to a second season because I just imagine more money will be thrown at it because it has been pretty successful so far. And, I mean, look, this is the richest person in the world's company. So if he can't throw some money at a show that should be his network's biggest prestige program, then nobody really can. So I'm uh, I'm looking forward to seeing what uh, happens with Season 2 of The Wheel of Time uh, when that does drop. I guess there are going to be a couple of casting changes from what I've seen. Um, but, you know, plenty of shows have, have been able to get over that. But at least... It won't affect Rosamund Pike, so I'll still be there for season two. But I really did like the way season one went. And if you find yourself watching it and you're like two episodes into it and you're like, I don't know, I'm not really feeling it, um, I would tell you to watch at least through the fourth episode and see if you're still not feeling it. If you're not by that point, you probably won't. But I was totally gripped like around the third or fourth episode. I thought the show really took off into another gear. And those first couple episodes did feel a little bit slow, a little bit of a of a slog. And, you know, I mean, you're trying to get your bearings and all that stuff, um, but it, it really gets good after about the third or fourth episode. So I was impressed with the first season of, of The Wheel of Time, which is now streaming in its entirety on uh, Amazon Prime Video. I wouldn't say it's my favorite thing Prime Video's done yet. I still like Transparent an awful lot. I still think The Man in the High Castle was pretty magical for its first couple seasons. I still think um, I still think Goliath was a really good show. Really tight, nice, well-acted, cool show. Um, but, the, you know, this is in Fleabag, obviously, kind of speaks for itself. It's a great show, too. Uh, but Prime's had some good ones, um, but I think The Wheel of Time has a chance to be its most substantial. And given the breadth of how much source material it's going to have to go off of, I think, you know, things are, are, are looking up because that first season is is key on these kind of big shows. And, and whether it works or not, then, I mean, that kind of decides, can decide the future of your whole series. So I think they nailed this one and let's uh, let's see where they go from here, I guess. So I wanted to tell you that it, the, it seems like the Beatles have really come back in a big way. Like every 10, 20 years, really like 15 years or so, it seems like the Beatles come back 
in some way. And I remember, I'm old enough to remember, like, at the turn of the millennium, when the Beatles came back the last time. Like, in the 90s, they had the anthology series, the big uh, book that came out, the big documentary, the huge documentary that they did, um, and that box set of albums with the anthology. It was all these, like, extra takes and chatter in the studio and it was like the deepest dive anyone had done into the Beatles career Um, and that really was a renaissance of the Beatles but then a few years later like around the turn of the millennium the one album came out with all their number one hits and just became a massive seller uh, and influenced all of these other artists to come drop their own number one hits greatest hits albums everyone was copying off of that what the Beatles had done and that one collection really was great because that was when I first got into the Beatles and I think it was a great gateway into their career I did not my parents were bo- born in the mid 60s so and they were both like you know kind of rural kids really so my parents both grew up like listening to country music a lot and that kind of stuff so that neither of them were Beatles fans at all um like they didn't really know anything about the Beatles they never listened to the Beatles ever I was not one of those kids that grew up like hearing Beatles music I had to discover the Beatles through a guy that used to give me rides home that I went to school with he was a year older than me a grade older than me named Todd um and he was I just thought he was such a funny guy and he was a total weirdo but I loved I I just thought he was a cool guy and he lived close to me and he'd give me rides home and he loved the Beatles he had all of these like every Beatles CD just like piled up in his pickup truck and he had all these Elvis CDs and all kinds of just weird old stuff that like people our age just didn't listen to and so he really helped me get into the Beatles and so did the one album Um, And the Let It Be Naked album I remember coming out. So there was this whole kind of resurgence of the Beatles. And I went through like, I'm I'm telling you, it had to have been at least a year-long period where the Beatles were about all I listened to. I didn't listen to anything but the Beatles probably when I was about 15 years old, maybe 14, 15. 14 years old, I'd probably say. Just Beatles all the time. That was all I was listening to. And... um, I'm like making compilations of different like configurations of songs. And, you know, when you used to burn CDs and stuff like that. And I was just obsessed with the Beatles uh, at that point in my life. And then just as quickly, I like didn't listen to the Beatles again for like 10 years. I was just like, okay, I heard everything a million times, knew all the songs by heart. And I just had gotten out of it. I just wasn't into them anymore but now here we are we're having another resurgence and i gotta tell you i watched within the last month two documentaries about the beatles that completely reignited that fandom that i had for them that love that i had for this band all those years ago and i'm like back full on to listening to the listening to the beatles nonstop again and rediscovering my love for them and i'm reading this you know biography of john lennon that uh, i have kind of always wanted to read but just it was like, yeah, it's too long. I don't want to read it. But now I'm like tearing through it because it, I just I care again about these guys and, you know, about uh, about all this stuff. So the two movies I watched were Hulu's Eight Days a Week, The Touring Years, um, which is streaming on Hulu. It was directed by Ron Howard. It came out a few years ago, so it's a little bit older. Um, but it is about the Beatles years on the road, which are not very there weren't very many. They only toured. For, I mean, hell, they were only a band for about 10 years, and they were only cutting albums for like eight years, really. 
Um, so it's amazing when you think about the output and the stellar output of music that they put in that time. And people forget that. I mean, you think this was a band that was around for 20, 25 years. They, they were around for less than a decade, really. Uh, and they didn't tour, but for about five years of that. And then they just stopped completely performing live and, uh, you know, only did one more concert uh, for the rest of their careers after about the mid-60s point. So eight days a week is about the year specifically that they were a touring band uh, that you you know could say they were like a real rock and roll act out on the road uh, doing tours in addition to doing albums. But this movie is strictly about their time away from home being on the road. So I watched that one and then I also watched the Peter Jackson epic Get Back, which is now streaming on Disney+. Plus. It's a three-part film. It's about nine hours in length. And it covers the making of uh, the album Let It Be. And, um, you know, of course, nobody knew what this album was going to be when it started, when these sessions started. And and this movie really takes you, it's just, it takes place over the course of about a month. And the Beatles were filming and recording everything, you know, using audio to record everything, but filming most of it for a documentary that they were going to do about that album. Um, And it ended up coming out in a very truncated form. But this like Jackson gives it the full treatment and and just shows you from start to finish basically the creation of this album, which is a a landmark in classic rock history, obviously. Uh, So these are two very different movies, but they both. I, I was enthralled by both of them for different reasons. I watched eight days a week first and. I thought this movie was remarkable in the fact that it showed me how truly tight the Beatles were with each other and how they really were like brothers. And these were guys who grew up together. I mean, they were when when they were the Beatles, they were like in their 20s and the band ended when they were in their early 30s or late 20s in the case of George Harrison, really. Um but they were like in their 20s. So they were essentially growing up together. And they were kids in Liverpool, teenagers uh, who worked together back then on and off a little bit um, and uh, knew each other, certainly from around town. I mean, it's not really a huge city or anything. It's not a quaint little village, but it's, uh, you know, not a massive. It's not like London or something where you wouldn't know anybody who else who uh, was in town with you and playing music. You pretty much would know all the other musicians. So these guys went back a long way. But all the press on the Beatles these days, and I think since they broke up, because it was such a monumental thing that happened in pop culture history, the Beatles breaking up. Um, and it left so many people devastated because they never did reunite. And, you know, they probably would have. I don't see why they wouldn't have had John Lennon not been killed um, because it really like it just seems like one of those things that would have happened at some point. And certainly McCartney and Lennon butted heads a lot. And certainly Harrison butted heads with them a lot. Um, And Ringo seems to always be the one who never butted heads with anybody. And that's just how Ringo is. And that's why everyone on earth loves Ringo. Um, but I mean, that's just, that kind of happens in a band and the egos got big. And, but I feel like nowadays, like everyone picks a side and they just want to tear the other guys down. And, and everyone has all these theories as to why the band broke up. And 
acts like they just, oh, they couldn't stand it. They just hated each other so much. And there were periods, I think, where it was true. But these movies both reminded me that, that it's not that simple. Because eight days a week was remarkable. It was so fun to watch these guys just being brothers, just being friends. I think they loved each other deeply. And I got that all throughout eight days a week. The foot, the old footage showing them touring, showing them being on the road in these little buses, airplanes, um, in these little shitty hotel rooms that they're like sharing rooms. I mean, when they went to America, they were already the biggest act in all of Europe you know, and certainly in the United Kingdom, in rock history at that point, they were it. They were the biggest. And still, they come to America, blow the doors off of the place, um, and attract, you know, millions of more fans overnight, basically, with their appearance on the Ed Sullivan Show, and become the biggest rock act, rock act in the history of popular music. But when they were touring, it was not luxurious. It was like the labels were just doing everything they could to keep it cheap and, and make their margins as big as they possibly could. And you're amazed when you're watching the footage of the Beatles, the biggest band, even in the earlier part of the 60s to the mid-60s, still the biggest band in the world at that point. Um when they were on tour, they were not rolling in style and it looks cramped and it looks uncomfortable. And it's like, you know, the sound system sucks. The equipment that they get sucks. Uh, Ringo's drums aren't even set up correctly. Sometimes when they go out to, you know, there are clips in the film in eight days a week where Ringo's having to like, he comes, he's ready to play, gets out on stage. I think at the, the one where they, it shows some of the clips from when they played at Shea stadium. Um, at one of their biggest shows ever and one of their last big shows ever. And like Ringo's got to like set his drums up himself. He comes out there like ready to play. And he's like, they put the floor Tom in the wrong place. And like things are flipped around and he's like him and one of the techs are like out there trying to flip stuff around while John and George and Paul are just kind of standing there like tuning their guitars. Like, okay, uh, we're ready to play here, Ringo. What's going on, man. And I mean, this is the Beatles, but it's like so slapdash it feels like and it's amazing when you think about how musicians these days present themselves like the Beatles couldn't do this it was just it was everyone was making it up as they went along uh, at that point and no one had ever seen a cultural phenomenon like this where you have fans rushing the gates and like just trying to tear these guys apart just to get a piece of them like rip a hair out of George Harrison's head or something um, I mean, these are crazed fans and nobody understood that this was going to happen. So eight days a week does a fantastic job of showing you to me how great, uh, of a, of a unit the Beatles were of a true band that they were, because I think now you think of them as four different distinct personalities. And I think the white album did that for a lot of people, but this movie is really all before the white album. So it's when they were a truly a band, um, and they were never a better band than they were in those first like four records that they put out. And, you know, really going up probably to Revolver, really, when they were really a true unit, maybe even Rubber Soul would be the better place to cut that off. But they were just such a great tight band. And this movie is awesome because it, it, it shows you that again, because all you do is hear the, the stories about how oh, they hated each other and they, you know, the egos were too big to fit in one room and all that kind of stuff. Um, and at a point I think it was true, but eight days a week shows you that it, it wasn't that simple and that these guys, I think really, 
truly they loved each other and uh, they were also just great players is the other thing because I mean we know obviously the songwriting acumen is what everyone talks about when they talk about the Beatles and the the willingness to take chances in the studio and stuff like that but their playing is so tight and it comes from all of those countless hours that they spent playing bar sets uh, in Germany and in Liverpool I mean they're playing for like eight to ten hours a day uh, for just angry crowds and I mean to be able to play for that long at a point when no rock songs were longer than like three minutes at a time meant you had to first off know how to play like 300 different songs just at any point you had to be human jukeboxes basically and you had to be able to adapt uh, adopt I should say all the personalities of all the bands you're playing and the styles of them so that's why the Beatles and so, so many of these old groups were such brilliant players because they had to be. They were like blue-collar musicians, really, before they took off. And the Beatles are a great example of that. But Eight Days a Week showed me again how great musicians they were. They just sounded so good, and Ringo's drumming was just so... just It just lights you on fire. And uh, just hearing the tempo that they play some of these songs with... I mean, they're jacking the tempo up like to almost double time what they are on the records, and it sounds great. And uh, it's just cool to see them having fun because the Beatles aren't a band that you a lot of times think of as having fun anymore. Uh, you know, I mean, I think the, the, a lot of us think of them being as being really serious. And eight days a week was a reminder that it wasn't always that way. And that, and and I totally recommend, by the way, that you watch eight days a week if you have any interest. In, you know, early rock and roll and definitely in the Beatles, you got to watch eight days a week. It's it's one of the better Ron Howard movies to come out in years, I think. And he was not a documentary filmmaker. Um, this was kind of taking a chance, really, to let Ron Howard direct this movie about the Beatles and have access to all this footage because that wasn't his wheelhouse you know I mean he's never been a documentary guy, but I think he did a great job on this and clearly he cared uh, and was interested. It's 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 very good. Ringo has a sexy nose. A sexy George nose. George's got sexy eyelashes. Who has? George's got sexy eyelashes. Which one is yours? That one. That one. You got sexy eyelashes. I love the Beatles for them, and I'll always love them. Even when I'm 105 and an old grandmother, I'll love them. And Paul McCartney, if you are listening, Adrian from Brooklyn loves you with all her heart. But I'm going to tell you what's even better than eight days a week and that's get back which is streaming now on disney plus and I, you know what i do not want to i don't want to use hyperbole okay i've been accused of using hyperbole by my wife beth in the past she has said that i use it often when i talk about things i just i get too excited about stuff i think it's too good but Get Back was one of the most fascinating things I have ever seen in my life. And friend, I have seen a lot of things. I have watched a lot of stuff in my life. But Get Back enthralled me for the entire nine hours of its run. I was so sad when it ended. I did not know what to do. Like, what am I going to do now that I don't have Get Back to watch? So like I said, what this is, this is so ambitious. It is a... A deep, like day by day, blow by blow look into the creation of Let It Be. And this movie is difficult. It is, it, some people would, could say it was boring. I would tell you them that they are wrong. I didn't think a single second of this was boring. I was gripped 
I was hanging on every single word, every little joke that was made. Like I was just could not believe I was watching that. This was like a dream to me because I have always wanted to see what goes into making an album. I just think it's a process that has not been documented that well because there maybe is a lot of boring day-to-day work stuff that goes into it. I mean, we've seen so many movies about the making of movies because it's cool. You got all these different sets and there's tons of different people around and Actors are just in general, you know, kind of interesting to watch them get into character and directors are kind of fascinating figures to to watch. And, you know, it's it's the movie business. So they make movies about themselves a lot of times because it's what they know. But I don't feel like the making of a record from start to finish, especially one by a band and not by like one singer songwriter who is in control of writing the songs. I mean, the Beatles were a band. Uh, who, you know, were wrestling over creative decisions all the time. And Get Back goes right into that. It just put, It's like a nature documentary, but instead of watching monkeys, you're watching the Beatles. You're watching the most fascinating possibly group of musicians ever put together in a room. I mean, these people, these guys are characters, larger-than-life characters from pop culture history. John Lennon. Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. These are George Martins walking around. I mean, these are people who just tower above so many others um, in pop culture history. They are names that will live on for centuries uh, as just titans. And you're just getting to watch them work and go from coming into the studio on day one with scraps of songs, nothing that sounds particularly good, nothing that really jumps off, to 30 days later, basically, and it's even less than that because they're only working on weekdays, they're taking weekends off, and there are a couple times where they take even some days off, and putting together a full album, which is a rock and roll classic, and is Let It Be the greatest Beatles album? I mean, no, nobody would say that it is. But it's, I've always had a soft spot for it because I feel like they sound like they're having fun on that record. I feel like they just, it's a rock album where Sgt. Pepper's is not a rock album, where the White Album is not a rock album. It, it is just a fun rock, classic rock album. It sounds great. The songs are longer than Beatles tracks usually ended up being. There's more guitar work on it, I feel like. Paul's bass playing is tremendous. Like everyone just sounds good. Um, Billy Preston in there playing the keys like it, they just sound different they sounded energized I always thought on let it be and so I've always liked that album a lot and to get to see it be made is it, it's a gift I, I thought I feel like this is a one in a million type of experience because what ends up happening the story basically the plot of get back is that the Beatles have like 30 days start to finish to do this album because Ringo at the end of the month, and and the movie uses this gimmick where Peter Jackson shows you a calendar page of January of 1969, okay? And he keeps going back to that calendar page at the end of every workday, and a day gets crossed off, and it goes on to the second one. So I think the film starts on like January 3rd or something like that, whatever the first day of work that they did. And everything is happening to be filmed because the Beatles planned on doing a documentary about this album, which they didn't even know what it was going to be called. So it was called the Get Back Sessions uh, eventually because they were doing a song called Get Back. And that ends up being the the big single, the first single that comes off uh, of the album and being a number one hit for them. Uh, But the album obviously ends up being called Let It Be. 
And so they've got like 30 days to do this because at the end of that period, Ringo is going to be doing a movie called The Magic Christian with Peter Sellers. And Peter Sellers pops into the uh, movie. He pops in to get back for uh, one little scene where he just kind of comes in and is hanging out with him. Um, but so it's Ringo, really. that He's the reason why they have to rush through this. And so their whole idea is we're going to do a TV special for the BBC and we're going to do a documentary Um and we're going to have an album out and it's going to be like this media blitz and we're going to hit everybody at all times with all of these new Beatle projects and everyone's going to be very excited. And we know that that a lot of that stuff does not end up happening, but it kind of is what stokes their creativity and this deadline that's imposed on them is what gets them in gear to be able to do this. And it's uh, just, I mean, it is fascinating because Lennon and McCartney and Harrison come in with like scraps. I mean, hardly anything. And you're hearing these songs that end up becoming iconic. And if you know anything about the recording of Let It Be, you know that they actually recorded Let It Be and then they recorded Abbey Road. But Abbey Road got released first and Let It Be got held back and then it was released last. So Let It Be is their last album. But it's not the last album they recorded. It was Abbey Road that they recorded last. So a lot of people debate still what what is the Beatles' final album. Um, and I feel like Abbey Road is their final album. To me, that's the last, because that's the last stuff they recorded really together in the studio. So to me, that's the last work. But so you hear some songs from Abbey Road being noodled around with in the studio and tracks that you know by heart being just worked out. And they don't have the lyrics yet, so Lennon and McCartney are just kind of humming along with tunes. And you know what the lyrics are going to end up being, but you see them actually writing the songs. And it is so just like I could have watched it all. I could have watched 20 hours of it because just seeing these songs come together, hearing them play take after take and add new bits in and knowing in my head where these songs go like to see where they started and how quickly they're able to put these things together. And then you'll have like George Harrison walk in one day like on Tuesday morning and he'll be like, yeah, I wrote this song last night and I just was like, I I wanted to write it from start to finish. And, you know, I think, I think I'm, I I think it's all done. And so it's old Brown shoe is the song. And if you know the Beatles, I mean, that's, this is one of my favorite Harrison songs. It's such a total rocker. It's just a cool song. He wrote it in one night. He just comes into the studio and he's just playing it for him. Like, yeah, I I put this together last night. What do you guys think? That's right, the ride is only half of what's wrong I want to show her girl, sometimes was it twice as long Now I'm stepping out this old brown shoe This is just genius to watch these guys do this. And it's it is a glimpse into the artistic process that I just feel like I've never had before. So that to me is what made Get Back something so special. And your mileage may vary. You might think it's you might think it's pretentious, you might think it's boring. Um 
Beth was watching a little bit with of it with me, and she didn't really. She wasn't loving it, but I was hanging on every single second. I didn't think there was a wasted minute in this thing. I just feel like you may never see the artistic process in greater detail. And when you combine that with the fact that these are some of the most mythical people in music history, and they're just doing day-to-day studio work, like it's nothing big and flashy. It's just they're doing it for an audience of themselves, basically. This is a one-in-a-million type of experience that Peter Jackson has given us, and I, I am so grateful. I just feel like he has outdone himself yet again. And the way he does the documentary is that he stays completely out of the way. He lets the footage speak for itself, and he has told the definitive story of the creation of Let It Be using just the Beatles' own words, Um in this movie. And it's amazing because it sounds so easy, but it's not, uh, at all. And he makes it look like this is easy, but he's got fascinating subjects. He's got great footage that was shot back in 1969. He's got great audio all over the place because it's being shot in a sound studio, um, or in a uh, music studio, I should say. And so clearly he's going to have some great sound to work with also. Um, but I just feel like the work that went into this was painstaking, and, and Jackson made it look so easy, but it's not. But um, it, this is hit. I love his foray into documentary filmmaking because he did that World War I film, um, They Shall Not Be Forgotten. And that one was really an intensely personal story for Jackson because his grandfather, I think, had fought in World War I for Britain. And um, he just wanted to honor him, basically. And that movie was was fascinating also because it used only the voices of guys who had fought in World War One and used footage and made it look like footage that had just been shot last week. But it was real news, real footage. And they like went frame by frame and turned it into, uh, you know, 4K high def footage. And it was amazing. And it was really, um, that was a, a very intense experience as well. I know Andy was a great fan of it. He's the one I actually recommended that I watch that one. I hadn't seen that one yet. I watched it about a month before I watched Get Back. And I think it was, it showed that he could tell this kind of story better than a lot of people could. And I, I'm so glad that Apple, the Beatles company, gave Jackson the keys to go down to the vault and use this footage because I don't know if anyone could have done it better. I don't think anyone could have. I think that I think get back honestly is perfect. And I'm not sure what the rules are anymore on best documentary at the Oscars. I don't know if this one is going to count as like a TV thing because I remember when the OJ Simpson documentary came out um, for ESPN, they that won the Oscar. That was like a nine hour epic documentary into oj simpson's life uh but then they changed the rules like right after that to make it to where movies like that were not eligible for oscars anymore because they operate on such a different kind of thing and i have a feeling get back will be the same way but it's a shame because this would be no question oscar winning best documentary kind of material but i think it'll be counted as a tv project so it won't but this is essential documentary viewing to me uh, and especially if you're into the arts, if you're into this, the creative process, into songwriting at all, music, um, certainly, obviously, if you like the Beatles at all, if you've ever had a period where you like the Beatles, watch Get Back. Seriously, I think it's, everyone should watch this movie, though. It's, it's the best thing that I have seen Disney Plus do 
And uh, I think it's just a tremendous achievement for everyone involved. I, everything I thought I knew about the creation of Let It Be was changed by this because things were not nearly as hateful and egotistical and, um, you know, acrimonious as I thought they were. I thought the making of Let It Be was like, oh, my God, the guys didn't even want anything to do with each other. They, they were at each other's throats. But you watch Get Back, and you're in the studio every day with them. And they are having fun. Like, Lennon is just having fun. He's being, he's, he's being a jerk off, like, just laughing about everything. I mean, it would have been so hard to get any work done with John Lennon around because I feel like he's just constantly trying to make jokes and make everybody laugh. And he's doing a good job of it. McCartney is dead serious most of the time, but also Lennon ends up cracking him, you know, every now and then and making him even have some fun. And Harrison's having a good time. Ringo, of course, is sitting back there. He looks half bored half the time. But the the mood in the studio is joyous. And Linda Eastman, who becomes Linda McCartney, she's coming in and out. Everyone's, you know, saying hi. And Yoko Ono's there with with John and just, you know, sitting there with him, doing her own stuff, whatever. Um the whole time and nothing, none of it is, is painful to watch at all. Like I, I just was amazed at how friendly the whole thing felt and how fun it felt. Like it felt like it would have been a good time to be around during the, the let it be sessions. And that was something I never in a million years thought. I thought I knew everything about let it be in the making of it. And like they hated each other. Of course they couldn't wait to get out of the studio, but it looked like they were actually having a great time making this movie and uh, of course the rooftop concert the legendary rooftop concert we get to go in detail into how it was put together and we get to see the entire thing from multiple camera angles people down the street giving their reactions we hear every song um so again it's just rock and roll history preserved in the highest cleanest most pure way possible it really is like you are there and that is what makes a, uh, what makes Get Back such a, a a dream of an experience for anybody who's a Beatle fan. So I, I cannot say anything better about this. I think Get Back is one of the best documentaries that I've ever seen, honestly. And about the arts, it certainly is right up there. It's an essential piece of viewing, and uh, I would put it on everybody's maps. I think you need to watch this thing. And, yeah, it's long, but... I think you might end up wanting it to be longer by the time it's over. I know I did. I wanted to see even more. I was like, man, I wish they would have shot the making of Abbey Road also, because I want to go into that. What could it be, Paul? Something in the way she moves. What attracted me at all? Just say whatever comes into your head each time. Attracts me like a cauliflower until you get the word. Yeah, but I've been through this one, like, for about six months. Attracts me like a pomegranate. <laughs> We could have that. Attracts me like a mommy granite. Something in the way she moves. Attracts me like a mommy granite. Like a coffee pot. Something in the way she moves. Uh, Get Back is streaming on Disney Plus if you want to check it out. And eight days a week, the touring years is streaming on Hulu. Both are fantastic. Both ignited my love for the Beatles, um, and uh, they're completely worth your time. Yeah. 
I'm not going to All right, I've been talking about music too much here. Uh, Andy, I'm not trying to come for your job. I promise you that, my friend. Um, let me toss it up to Andy, who's going to be talking about what he's been listening to lately. We'll, uh, I'll take a breather and come back in a bit and talk a little bit about uh, Disney Plus's Encanto and give you my thoughts on that. And I'm also going to tell you about some movies now streaming on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. And I'll tell you the best thing I watched this month. Uh, anyway, take it away, Mr. Sedlak. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I'm in the middle of nowhere. That is Meatloaf and Jim Steinman's song for Crying Out Loud, which concludes the 1977 blockbuster album, Bat Out of Hell. I still don't know if people realize how big Bat Out of Hell actually was. Look, let's, let's do this. Taylor Swift's 1989 album, that's the one with uh, Shake It Off and blank space, the the real big one, that has sold a little over 10 million copies, 10 million copies, and and that thing was everywhere, right? Well, Meatloaf's Bat Out of Hell has sold between 30 and 40 million copies, depending on which sales figures you're looking at. The sequel, Bat Out of Hell 2, sold 14 million copies. Year after year, people keep discovering Meatloaf's music with Jim Steinman, and it's really kind of neat. Meatloaf died in January at the age of 74. I've read a few obituaries that sort of treated him like a novelty, frankly kind of a joke. Rolling Stone was one of them. And it's true, Meatloaf never went for style points. And it's true that he was like a quirky guy in life. But when it comes to purely presenting his music, he was all heart. And what is rock and roll, if not the human heart and human desire personified? 
I am an unapologetic Meatloaf fan. Bad Out of Hell, Bad Out of Hell 2, Dead Ringer, Welcome to the Neighborhood, Couldn't Have Said It Better, Braver Than We Are. These are all wonderful rock albums. One of my earliest memories is finding a copy of my dad's Bad Out of Hell record in the basement and wondering if my parents were Satanists. You've probably seen that album cover. It's, it's bizarre. It's like, what kind of weird shit are these people into? Meatloaf's uh, music partner, Jim Steinman, died about a year ago, around the same time as DMX, if I recall. I eulogized Jim Steinman then on this show. I won't eulogize Meatloaf. I'm just so sick of talking about dead people. But Meatloaf was never better than when he worked with Jim Steinman. They did four albums together, and each of them are worth listening to. Dead Ringer, in particular, is woefully underrated. That's the one that came right after Bat Out of Hell. Rock and roll is at its best when it's open-hearted, when it's liberating, not uh, trying to fit into trends or, or what's hip. It's fully realized and alive. It's got humor, sex, knowledge, political awareness, weariness, worldliness. Meatloaf and Jim Steinman's music had all of that. They, they put out some, some damn near perfect rock songs. Meatloaf had more or less retired from touring and recording. Uh, still, it's, it's appropriate to mark his passing. So, thanks for the music. The music, the music, the music. I cherish it. Bat Out of Hell is as much a part of me as my left arm. You know, it's that crucial. So, rest in peace, Meatloaf. Uh, you got through to this boy. Now let's get on with it. Get on with it. Yes, get on with it. As of about a month ago, it is 2022. 2022. It's COVID. It's congressional gridlock. It's division. It's Marvel movies and Netflix and TikTok. It's Adele, Succession, Olivia Rodrigo. It also means that the year 2002 was 20 years ago. 20 years ago. Now, I was in 8th grade in 2002, 13 years old, 14 years old, whatever, uh, and that's an influential time for me and in, in my generation. What came out in the years of 2001, 2002, 2003, that stuff carried extra weight just because it hit us at that time. The time when you really start listening, the time when you really start watching, the time when you really start coming into your own as a person and human being. The fact that that was now, 20 years ago, well, that's a milestone. So let's look back at the year 2002 in music. Let's look back. Can you believe this song? Is 20 years old? Tell me what is going to make things so complicated. 
Can you believe this song is 20 years old? This, also 20 years old, remember 9-11 was the fall before. Cause we'll put a boot in your ass It's the American way And Uncle Sam put your name At the top of his list And the Statue of Liberty Started shaking her fist And the eagle will fly And it's gonna be hell When you hear In 2002, American Idol premiered In 2002, the first Bonnaroo was held in Tennessee And this song was released This song also came out in 2002. Jam Master Jay died in 2002. Joe Strummer died in 2002. Waylon Jennings died in 2002. Fergie joined the Black Eyed Peas and Salt and Peppa officially broke up. Creed was still hanging around in 2002. Creed, you could say, handed off the baton to this band who had their first hit. In 2002. Never made it as a wise man. The top five albums of the year, in terms of sales, the biggest sellers, are as follows. And we'll start with uh, number five Laundry Service by Shakira, Britney by Britney Spears, Let Go by Avril Lavigne, Nellyville by Nelly. I remember a girl I had a crush on was, was so into that album. And number one was The Eminem Show. I've created a monster, cause nobody wants to see Marshall no more. They want shady, I'm chopped liver. Uh, well, if you want shady, this is what I'll give you. A little bit of me, mix with some hard liquor, some vodka that'll jumpstart my heart quicker than a shock when I get shocked at the hospital by the doctor. When I'm not cooperating, when I'm rocking the table while he's operating. Hey! You waited as long to stop debating, cause I'm back, I'm on the rag and ovulating. I know that you got a job, Miss Cheney, but your husband's heart problem's complicating. So the FCC won't let me be, or let me be me, so let me see. They try to shut me down on MTV, but it feels so empty without me. So come on and dip, bum on your lips, jump back, jiggle the hip, and wiggle a bit, and get ready. The Eminem show made a big impression on me. Maybe it was the timing, but I still consider this to be Eminem's best album. I know people will shout me down, maybe rightfully so. But when you open a record with this, I mean, come on. Something in on. White America! I could be one of your kids! White America! Eric looks just 
You could argue that 2002 was the biggest year in Eminem's career. The Eminem show was the biggest album of the year. Without me and Cleaning Out My Closet, two of the biggest singles of the year. And that November, he released 8 Mile, which I remember seeing in the theater. And you better believe I was feeling the soundtrack. We all were. I was playing in the beginning, the mood all changed I've been chewed up and spit out and booed off stage But I kept rhyming and step right in the next cipher Best believe somebody's paying the Pied Piper Eminem was such a gift to our generation Because the music keeps paying dividends Look, we came of age in the shadow of 9-11 We graduated college in the midst of the Great Recession And as our careers should be solidifying, a global pandemic hits, and we're dealing with like this once-in-a-century curveball. I was talking to a friend recently. Our generation may have been the most ill-prepared in recent memory. Like, we were taught by people who didn't have a clue about computers or tech. You know, like, I remember in grade school, we had like a a computer in the back of the room and like every now and then we used to play like math blaster or something like that that was it like these people didn't didn't have a clue about that stuff not to mention where the job market was going and now you know when we look around it's like you either work in tech or you're a loser we were ill prepared for such a world you know and so the angry music from Eminem the outsider mentality the farce the darkness That stuff comes in handy when you're navigating these things. I go back to the Eminem show a lot. You know, it's a guy at the top of his game, his commercial peak, completely shitting on the whole system. It's as punk rock as punk rock gets. Eminem was up for a Grammy for Album of the Year in 2002, along with Bruce Springsteen, who made a comeback that year. If you know me, you know uh, how I think of Bruce. I'll never forget kids coming up to me at the Pickway County Fair telling me they'd heard the new Bruce Springsteen song. They knew I was a fan. Also up for album of the year that year was Home from the Dixie Chicks, Come Away With Me by Nora Jones, and Nellyville by Nelly. And this little Grammy goes to Nora Jones. I just want to say, in a time where this world is really weird, I feel really blessed and really lucky to have had the year I've had, so thank you. So Nora Jones topped both Springsteen and Eminem for Album of the Year that year. And I'm not sure what kind of impact she's had on my generation. She's put together a nice career for herself, but always a little under the radar. Uh, I'm not sure Nora Jones gets, uh, gets the party going quite like this song. Oh, 
That was Nelly and Kelly Rowland, Dilemma, another track from an album of the year candidate. The year 2002, officially 20 years ago. When I think back on that period of music, it's striking how um, divided the the charts were at that point. Like I, I looked up the top 20 singles of the year. Six were rock, six were hip-hop, four were R&B, and four were what I consider to be pure pop. I doubt that you find that kind of even variety this year when you look at the end-of-year charts. I doubt that you see six rock songs listed. Of course, that's not to say that The Rock in 02 was high caliber, and maybe that's one of the reasons you don't see it much these days. Um, you know, we're talking about bands like The Calling, uh, Jimmy Eat World, which they were okay. Um, Linkin Park, Creed, Nickelback. There was zero electronic influence on the charts in 02. None. No DJs. David Guetta had one of the biggest songs of the year last year. Uh, that kind of song just wasn't there 20 years ago. When I look back on these songs, you know, there's obviously some, some nostalgia there. You know, you can be sentimental. Uh, about them, uh, but it also strikes me when I take a step back that that there was nothing particularly spontaneous, uh, save Eminem, that was popular at that time. Like these are all studied, carefully produced songs that I've mentioned today. Again. Eminem sort of the the exception to that, but Eminem was sort of on an island, you know, you couldn't really, like, you're such an individual, like, you know, you were never going to be that guy, like, you weren't going to be that guy, you know, uh, he was fascinating, but kind of off in the distance, you know, there was no empowering type of thing, like, like the Sex Pistols or Nirvana, Buddy Holly, no explosion, of underground music at all, no behavior like the the Who smashing their instruments after a show or the the Michael Jackson moonwalk. It, you know, everything in O2 was just kind of safe. And you know, we weren't even a year removed from 9/11 at that point. So I maybe it's that nobody wanted to rock the boat after a crisis like that. But 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 it was all very safe produced to please and in the end that probably had as much of an impact on our generation as anything well let's see for the past two years i put out a fucking album i got arrested i got divorced i got fucking arrested i got out i got off the concept of the album is my life on blast like a show like my life is a show Sometimes I don't know where my private life and my private life ends and my public life begins. It all seems to blend together a lot. Friends, you know that we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it and enjoy it on Spotify once you're done with Joe Rogan's podcast by searching Stream Police. Uh, that'll bring up both the show and the playlist. Every month we add five more songs. Uh, to add to its perfection, okay? This month, they will all be 
Ronnie Spector songs. Ronnie Spector, of course, most famously of the Ronettes, died in January around the same time as Meatloaf. She had massive success in the 60s and then struggled to reclaim that success later in her career. But she led one of the most fascinating lives of the rock era, largely uh, due to her marriage and then emancipation from producer Phil Spector. And maybe more than anyone else I can think of, I, I equate her music w- with sex, and I don't know why. You know, it's 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 her voice, that raspiness, uh, something. Uh, I don't know, but it's just carnal to my ears. <laughs> anyway, <laughs> oh, anyway, hey, these are all Ronnie Spector cuts. Uh, may she and Meatloaf both rest in peace. First. It's a classic. Come on. Be My Baby by the Ronettes. Second, you know this one too. It's Baby I Love You by the Ronettes. Then, from her first solo album called Siren, it's Any Way You Want Me. Okay, let's go with uh, Love on a Rooftop. This is from an album called Unfinished Business. Very good record, although uh, usually overlooked. If you can dig it up, I recommend it. Keith Richards inducted the Ronettes into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. If you've if you've never listened to his induction speech, it's a doozy. Now I'll take you back to uh, 1964, AD, not BC, <laughs> 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 and uh, on the road as usual, you know. And uh, I climbed out of my, our little cubicle. And I'm walking down that corridor, and it's green, it smells, it's damp, and it's dark, you know. And as I get to the stairwell, 
I started to hear these voices. This beautiful little chant set up by Nedra and Estelle. And I realized I'm listening to the Ronettes and then that pure, pure voice over the top singing Be My Baby. Despite Jack Nietzsche's beautiful arrangements, but they could sing all their way right through a wall of sound. They didn't need anything. And for our final cut, it's Ronnie Spector with Keith Richards. This is called Work Out Fine. I want to tell you something, Keith. Keith, uh, I've been to see the preacher man. The preacher man? You must be out of your mind. I started, started what? Started to make wedding plans. Oh, oh really? yeah. That's it. Stay safe. Stay healthy. Stay out of the snow. Go Cavs. Bye now. All right. Thank you very much, as always, Andy. Always good to hear from you. Can you believe it? 98 episodes of the Stream Police podcast. And it only took us, what, six years or so to get to that point? Most shows get to 100 episodes within like the first month, don't they? Most podcasts, people just crank them out. It's ridiculous. But uh, uh, I don't know. We try to put uh, a lot of time into our shows, and uh, we really just um, – it's its just about the art form for us. We just do it because we love it, and uh, we hope that you do as well. So if you do, as Andy always urges you, go check uh, – go subscribe to the show and also rate the show and uh, uh, mark it with a nice five-star review put some comments on there only if you mean it though i'm not out here with my hat in my hand okay all right so moving on because uh, i talked too long about the beatles last in the last segment but i wanted to mention also on disney plus uh in the in between all the hours i spent watching get back i did manage to make it over to watch the movie that has really taken America by storm and has become like the most trending movie uh, on the planet in the past. I don't know how many years it feels like just everyone uh, is talking about this movie, talking about its songs, singing its songs, praising it, loving its characters. I'm talking about Encanto um, on Disney plus, and this is, Disney's latest uh, animated film, and it uh, is now streaming for you on Disney+. And it feels like the kind of movie that uh, we're very lucky to have streaming in our houses right now because it just is so popular. Like, this film would be, if it was a normal time, it would just be like Frozen where it was in theaters forever and it didn't come out on home video uh, for like a year after it was out because it was just still running in theaters. I think that's how Encanto uh, would be. But uh, this movie, I don't have anything bad to say about it. I really, it was a joy 
to watch. We watched it with Emerson, our son, and I think I mentioned he's about three years. He's three years old, um, and he really liked it. He didn't necessarily like follow the story or anything because I think it was it's it's not as plot driven like as a lot of Disney kids films are. It's more character driven. Uh, than a lot of their movies are. And I think this is a reason why a lot of people are loving this uh, more than they do some of the other Disney movies because it just feels different. It feels like a break from cliche, not cliche, but from tropes and from uh, the playbook, the Disney playbook. It's not a, it doesn't have princes and princesses in it. It doesn't have some big romantic storyline as kind of the main thing that keeps you going. It's not about pining love songs. The movie is really about the self. Um, it, it, for the most part, it's about family in a big way. Um, but it's about yourself, finding yourself, finding your worth. Um, and you know, the things that really make you happy and not just going along with the things that you're maybe told you ought to do, uh, because you're letting others live your life for you. I mean, this movie is kind of like about taking, the reins on your own life. And um, that's a, a theme that so many of us can can uh, identify with, right? I mean, it's a timeless kind of story. And uh, it's different kind of ground, I feel like, for Disney to tackle. And the way they did it was unique because this movie takes place in Colombia. And it's got a pretty much a, an all Latino voice cast, which is, you know, fantastic for a film like this, um, just like Coco was for Pixar several years ago. I mean, that was a movie that was made almost entirely with Latino uh, f- people behind the scenes doing the voice work um, and, and doing the some of the songwriting and stuff like that even and doing the performing, I should say, as well. And uh, in a lot of ways, Encanto feels like it belongs in the same ilk as Coco, which was a masterpiece to me. And it was such a touching movie about family. But these movies really don't have anything in common with each other at all, other than the fact that they are uh, stories about Latino characters in uh, big Latino families. And that's really, I would say, where the similarities kind of begin and end. They are big family movies. Um But this film was just so vibrant and magical. I think those are kind of the best words that I can use to describe it. If you don't know anything about Encanto, the story is basically pretty simple. It's about this family. They're called the the Family Madrigal, as the opening number will tell you. And... They are. They live in this house that is legitimately a, a living, breathing thing. Uh, this house is alive, and it can, you know, change its colors at will. It can move their chairs around for them, move the furniture. I mean, it, it's it's an incredible house. The house is a character all in itself, and the house gets involved in the musical numbers and just becomes, you know, really a major part of the movie, which is really cool. But anyway, after a tragedy happens to this family long ago, and we get to see that in the like the first scene of the of the film to see kind of how this whole thing started. Everyone in this family, in the magical family, has been blessed with a magical power, basically a gift, a magical gift that has made them legends in this little town that they live in. Wow. 
Diet Coffees for Grown-Ups. My Tia Peppa from Mood Effects for Weather. When she's unhappy, well, the temperature gets weird. My Tia Bruno, we don't talk about Bruno. They say he saw the future, one day he disappeared. Oh, and that's why Mom Lieta, here's her deal. Whoa, the truth is she can heal you with a meal. Whoa, her recipes are remedies for real. If you're impressed, imagine how I feel, Mom. You know, like one of the um, one of the girls in the family is given super strength, so she is able to you know lift anything. She's able to pick up the stone bridges around town and move them if somebody needs to move somewhere. You know, I mean, these, there's all kinds of great, really funny little bits of animation where she's like lifting up donkeys around the town, putting them on her shoulders and carrying them all around and 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 putting them back in their pen. And you know, I mean, stuff like that. There's a, one of the kids is able to talk to animals. Uh, that's his gift. They're all different. One of the um, women is able to control the weather based on her emotions. One of them has super hearing. So they all get a a gift or a magical power basically when they come of age. So when they turn a certain age on that birthday, they go and they be, they get their power. They get to find out what it is. Um, but the main character of the movie is a character named Maribel, and she is the only one that does not have a power. And so it's like everyone is kind of a little bit afraid of her and thinks she's weird because maybe the family's losing its touch. I don't know. She's one of the younger ones in the family. So it's only been recently that she hasn't gotten her power. So people look at her as kind of a curse almost. But she's the main character of the movie. And I feel like she will definitely go down as one of the most memorable lead characters that Disney has created in a long time. Um, You know, probably since Moana. Really, I would say. And and the supporting cast is just full of colorful figures. Like all the members of the family, they all have their own unique, um, you know, personalities. And they have, you know, their own phobias and, and neuroses and their own powers, obviously, and uh, their own looks. And it's just like everyone will have their own fam- uh, favorite member of the family. And I think for a lot of people, Maribel will be it because you can relate to her the most, obviously, because she does not have some kind of magical power, but she's just a good person and she's trying to figure out her own purpose. And it's harder for her than her other family members because she doesn't have that gift or so it would seem. But what the movie ends up telling us is that just because these other family members have a power doesn't mean that they have it all figured out doesn't mean that they're in any of a better position as far as knowing their place in the world than Maribel is. So it's not all about what your power happens to be. And, you know, it's it's all honestly like any of the members of the magical family could have been the main character in their own movie. Like they're all interesting enough in different ways where the movie could have followed them and you could see it being interesting. Like they could have their own story. They could have their own issues that they get into their own, um, uh, you know, conflicts and stuff like that. And they would all handle them in different ways because they're very different people. And so that is the marker of a great supporting, a great ensemble movie to me. Can you take any of the supporting characters and follow them for, if not a scene, then an entire movie and have it be interesting. And when you get great ensemble movies like uh, Boogie Nights like Magnolia, like uh, Shortcuts, uh, any of the great ensemble movies. 
The answer to that question is yes, the supporting characters are all interesting enough to carry certainly scenes on their own, arcs of their own. And I feel like in Encanto, it is that way. Like these characters are all fun and interesting enough to where we could want to follow them uh, along. Some better than others. The kid who turns into other people, I found that uncomfortable and didn't. I, I didn't. I didn't really like him. He was not pleasant to me. I would not want to watch a movie about him, but I could see how it would be interesting and it would it could work i mean it is a cool power but the themes of the of the film are pretty universal and the songs speak for themselves most of the songs are written by lynn manuel miranda and i gotta tell you i've never and andy's gonna you know this is he's gonna bristle at this because i know he's a great lover of hamilton i never ever got the hamilton thing because i tried to listen to it. And you can say maybe it's because I never saw it and I didn't watch it on Disney Plus and whatever. I've never seen a performance of it. Maybe that would totally change it for me. But I tried to listen to the 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 you know original cast recording. And it was like everyone said it was the greatest thing ever. And I just thought it was so like cheesy. I just thought that the rapping was so forced and bad and I, I just didn't like it. I didn't like really anything about it. Didn't care about the story of Alexander Hamilton at all. Um, didn't like, it just did not appeal to me in any way. I didn't think the songs were, you know, I just thought they were trying too hard to be powerhouse, I guess. And I feel like, so I'm not coming on here as a Lin-Manuel Miranda, like Stan or anything, in case you think that. But I was really impressed. I liked the songs that he did for Moana. That had really good music in it. But in Canto, the the songs are tremendous. Some of the best music that we've heard in a Disney movie in a long time. And certainly some of the catchiest. So I think Miranda really does some of his best work here. uh, And gives the characters their own songs that really tell their story uh, in ways that a lot of the great Disney musicals do. Um, and you know, not all the great Disney songs come from the main characters. And I think in Encanto, that is the case as well. These are not all songs being sung by Maribel. Um, you know, they're songs being sung by kind of every member of the cast and, um, you know, each of them has their own moment in the sun and, and Miranda gives them a song to go along with that. And I, I just, there's a reason why these songs have been breaking streaming records And it's uh, because they're great songs and they're just fun to sing along with and they tell the story in a a great way, the the way that movie musicals should be done. So uh, I I don't know if if Encanto is better than Zootopia, which was actually directed by Jared Bush, who co-directed this one uh, and co-wrote it. So it's coming from him as well. Um, But, you know, it's it's right up there with Zootopia, which is probably the best thing Disney's done in a while. Wreck-It Ralph, I I put up there with some of the best uh, that Disney has done. I just thought Wreck-It Ralph was so smart and so uh, beautifully animated, well-voiced, and just a cool movie. Just felt different for Disney also. Um, It just felt like a movie that Disney wouldn't have done. And uh, I just think this is up there, though. I would take this movie over Frozen any day of the week. And I think that it will have a long legacy, uh, to, to, to go along with it. So, uh, yeah, I mean, just everything that you've heard about Encanto basically is true. I I think it's, it's really fun. It's got positive messages for anybody who wants to watch it and take it in that way. And it's got really good songs to just tap along with and sing along with. 
uh, long after the movie is over. And I think it's got characters that you will remember for a long time. And it's a movie that you'll see the poster for it or whatever. You'll see it sitting on a shelf somewhere and you'll smile and you'll want to get it out and watch it again uh, because it's just that kind of a movie. It, it it won't get old, I don't think. So bravo to Disney for Encanto. I think they should be very proud of it. And uh, you should definitely give it a shot. If you're looking for some fun Friday night viewing with the family, uh, flip it on and, and get lost a little bit because this is escapist entertainment. Uh, and we need a little bit of that here during the pandemic more than we've kind of ever <laughs> since we've needed it since like the Great Depression, I think I would say. So uh, Encanto is now streaming for you on Disney Plus with your regular subscription. <laughs> what is going on? Abuela, it's okay. Everything's, we're going to save the miracle. The magic. What are you talking about? Look at our home. Look at your sister. Please, just Isabella wasn't happy. And of she course didn't... she's unhappy. You ruined her proposal. No, no, she needed me to ruin her proposal. And then we did all this. <sighs> and the candle burned brighter. And the crafts. Mirabel. That's why I'm in the vision. I'm saving the miracle. You have to stop, Mirabel. The crack started with you. Bruno left because of you. Luisa's losing her powers. Isabella's out of control because of you. I don't know why you weren't given a gift, but it is not an excuse for you to hurt this family. I will never be good enough for you. Will I? No matter how hard I try, no matter how hard any of us tries, Luisa will never be strong enough. Isabella won't be perfect enough. Bruno left our family because you only saw the worst in Bruno him. Bruno didn't care about this family. He loves this family. I love this family. We all love this family. You're the one that doesn't care. You're the one breaking our home. Don't you The ever. miracle is dying because of you. Okay, I always like to wind down the show by telling you, uh, giving you some recommendations. I give you two recommendations that are now streaming on Netflix, on Prime Video, on Hulu, and on HBO Max. Movies, by the way, not TV shows. Um, before that, though, I like to tell you the best thing I watched this month. And I had a, it was a lot of competition. I got really heavily back into watching stuff this month after, you know, my pacing had kind of slowed, slowed down a little bit over the last couple of years. Um, you know, depression can be a bitch. I'll just tell you that much. Uh, but the best thing that I watched this month, Get Back was probably it. But I, I, I'm not going to count that as a movie because it's just too much of an undertaking. But the best movie that I watched this month that you can get through in one sitting was 1975's Night Moves on HBO Max is where I caught this one. And I cannot believe I went so long without seeing this movie. I'm a huge lover of detective stories, of neo-noir. I mean... I've told you before on this show, Chinatown to me might be the greatest, single greatest movie ever made. I just don't know how you get make a movie better than that um, in every way. I just think it's f completely flawless. And I can go down the list. There are so many of those kind of movies that I absolutely love. And Night Moves, for some reason, escaped me. I just didn't watch it. 
Um, but I finally did, and I was blown away uh, by this movie. It's so different, and it kind of turns that whole genre on its head. It is a total character study. The plot completely takes the back seat, and it tells you the classic story about getting lost in your work getting so lost in your work that you forget about everything else and uh, whether or not that can ever be a positive thing. And in the case of Night Moves, I think it would be said that it can never be a positive thing because the way this thing ends is bleak. But it stars Gene Hackman as this uh, private eye who's just kind of, he's an ex-football player. And this is a guy that thinks about big questions to himself, and he's on the case looking for a, a lost girl, a 16-year-old, who hasn't been seen by her mother in weeks, and so he's kind of sent on this chase trying to find her. She's mixed up with all these different guys, and he's got to figure out where she's at. So that's the basic plot of the movie, um, but it's a missing girl story, and I, this isn't a big spoiler or anything, I don't think, because it resolves so fast. He finds her within 30 minutes of the movie, and this is a more this is like a 90-minute or so film and the movie only gets more intriguing after he finds her so the plot goes far beyond just him looking for this missing girl which would be enough for a lot of movies and uh, in a lot of ways I feel like this movie presages stuff like True Detective and I would be shocked if uh, Nick Pizzolatto the guy who did True Detective didn't say that Night Moves was an inspiration to him on doing the first season of that show. And, uh, this is just, this is great viewing. If you like dark nighttime movies, um, and if you like Gene Hackman and who doesn't, man, it just, if, if you disagree with me on this, maybe you should just find another show. But Gene Hackman to me just has something, right? He's like Paul Newman, but he's got the everyman look. Cause you watch Paul Newman and you're just in awe at how effortless he is and how good he is. But it's like, you look at him and you're like, my God, this is the most handsome person ever. Like he just looks so flawless. He just looks amazing. And Gene Hackman does not have that look. I mean, he's not a bad looking guy, but he, I mean, he kind of looks like a guy you could see on the street, but he's so effortless. And I cannot think of many actors who could just switch from being completely lovable and trustworthy to totally menacing and chilling as easily as Hackman did. He did it throughout his whole career. And this is one of the best roles that I've seen of him for sure. Right up there with the conversation. Another one of my favorites, Unforgiven, The French Connection, you know, the Night Moves still belongs right up there. So if you haven't seen it, it's streaming now on HBO Max. And uh, you should check it out. It's the best thing I watched this month. Gene Hackman in 1975's Night Moves. I could not tell where that movie was going. It was totally unpredictable to me. Did you come to get your shirt back? No, no. Okay. No, I came to tell you that I'm a private detective. I heard about your mother. I'll take you back to L.A. Are you kidding? No, I'm not. Well, you can forget it. You're not going back to that bitch! I'm afraid you don't have much choice. Oh, screw yourself! Deli! Deli, you're either going to go back to L.A. with me, and I'm going to turn you over to the cops hey, and let hold you here until your mother... This old pervert keeps flashing on me! No way, you fucking bounty hunter! You're not going to earn anything off of me! want me it's the money I know Arlene and so does Tom he hates her as much as 
All right, finally, movies now streaming for you. Let's get to uh, one that's light and one that's dark on Netflix, Prime Video, Hulu, and HBO Max. Because I don't just want to weigh you down with dramas here on the show. i got to tell you about some funny stuff, too. Uh, so streaming now on Netflix, something light for you. Honestly, it can be debatable whether this is light or dark. 1971's Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. An all-time classic and uh you know one of the great family films i think ever made and the whole vibe of it uh, of the movie is so weird and eerie and it's got that rolled doll just kind of otherworldliness that i i don't think a lot of other movies have been able to capture and uh willy wonka and the chocolate factory is one of those movies that fascinates me every time i see it whenever it's on tv which is often and i pass by i just want to watch at least a scene of it because it's just a, I love it. I, I love the songs. I love the costumes. I love the sets. I love Gene Wilder. I think the kids are great. Again, talk about a cast of memorable, uh, a cast of memorable characters who uh, each of them kind of has their own vices and their own great characteristics. And, and I don't know, I just feel like, and also I feel like Veruca Salt got screwed. Like she's the one that should have she should have won. She didn't break any of the rules. She just was a brat, but she didn't break his Like, Charlie broke the rules by drinking the soda. So he should have been banished for that based on Wonka's own, you know, kind of contract that he makes them sign. But Veruca Salt just gets banished because she's, you know, kind of an asshole. But she, de- she didn't deserve that, man. She should have been that one, the one that won the keys to the kingdom, if we're being honest here. But anyway, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory, streaming now on Netflix. It never, never gets old. Something dark for you on Netflix. Uh, let's go with Hell or High Water. This is t- a movie that kind of put Taylor Sheridan uh, really on the map. He had done Sicario. He had written that. And Sheridan's one of those guys that I think is really fascinating as far as the stories that he writes because he has a knack for telling these kind of dark stories set in the heartland and uh, I feel like you know Sicario was that and it wasn't necessarily in the heartland it was obviously a border story but Hell or High Water is this way and uh, he's the one that's behind also the big hit show Yellowstone Um, and I think you'll get some you might get some Yellowstone vibes from Hell or High Water so if you're a fan of that check this movie out it was uh, one of the I think it'll go down as one of the great late Jeff Bridges performances uh, as well, because he is very, very good in this movie, and the movie is uh, probably the best thing I've ever seen Chris Pine do. I think he was—he's tremendous in it. But it's about a couple of brothers who go around robbing banks uh, for a very noble reason, really. When you find out why they're doing it, and they're being chased down by uh, some some U.S. marshals led by Jeff Bridges, very gritty uh, modern Western kind of movie. All right, let's go to Amazon Prime Video, something light for you. Again, it's probably debatable because this movie is pretty grim. It deals with domestic violence. It deals with homicide. It deals with really some heavy shit. 2007's Waitress, starring the great Carrie Russell. Um, and this is just like a nice little unicorn of a movie. It, it hits really hard. I think it's got a great script. It's got really good performances. It's a little bit whimsical, but it is pretty grim. Uh, at the end of the day, and I think it's a nice surprise. It got turned into a Broadway musical, but this movie is not a musical. So don't don't think like, well, I don't want to see singing and dancing and stuff. You won't. The movie's not like that. Um, but Carrie Russell gives a great performance, as she always does. 
And uh, this movie really surprised me how much I liked it. I was a huge fan when I watched it a couple years ago. So check out Waitress now streaming on Prime Video. That's a that's that's a good watch. Again, if you're having uh, maybe a date night, good 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 one to watch. A little bit heavy, a little bit heavy. Thinking it's a thinking person's date night movie, um, not a romantic comedy in the traditional sense, but uh, it's got some very adult stuff going on. So cool movie. But in the end, it does end up being a feel-good film. Uh, Something dark for you on Prime Video. Let's go with Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol. This was the, like, what kicked off the second half of the Mission Impossible movies. Or I shouldn't say second half. I should say second phase, I guess. Because I feel like the first three Mission Impossible movies were, like, their own thing. And then the second, the, the phase that we're in now is a more consistent storytelling kind of mode for Mission Impossible. And I think it's only taken that franchise to new heights. And Ghost Protocol was really where all that got started. It's where Simon Pegg comes in and becomes a, a central character in here. And it's where, um, you know, Cruz just kind of takes his stunt stuff to even another level and the set pieces get even crazier here. So if you, for whatever reason, missed Mission Impossible Ghost Protocol or maybe you just forgot how cool it was, uh, check it out streaming now on Prime Video. It looks gorgeous, by the way, in high def where it's streaming there. Um, on Hulu, I am not going to give you something light because they didn't have any great comedies to me, but they had a couple of tremendous dramas streaming. So I'm going to give you two dark ones on Hulu. I apologize. Uh, nothing nothing escapist for you here. First off, I'm going to give you 1980s Ordinary People. This was the best picture winner for that year. It is very bleak. It's one of the first movies that it's kind of credited with making uh, therapy, like going in and having therapy sessions, be something that uh, hit the mainstream, that people who weren't just living on the coasts actually thought about taking the time to do, talking about their problems, getting in touch with them, because the movie does go, it tells you know a story between a therapist and a teenage boy who's going through some serious shit at home and the relationship that they have and how important that ends up being to the boy. So uh, Ordinary People is a heavy, heavy movie filled with great performances. It was uh, directed by Robert Redford, and it was his like directorial debut, and it is a tremendously confident debut because it just has these actors doing some serious stuff. Timothy Hutton won an Oscar for it. He's fantastic in the film. Judd Hirsch is the therapist. Uh, Donald Sutherland's great. Mary Tyler Moore gives this just like it's an amazing performance from Mary Tyler Moore because of what you're used to thinking her as. And she's not likable in the least in this movie. Um, but she does it so naturally that it's like, man, I want to see some more serious Mary Tyler Moore performances. So I was really a big fan of ordinary people. First time I watched it, uh, uh, it's one of those best picture winners that surprises me that it won and also uh, by how well it is held up. So check that one out. I think it really still has a lot to, to tell us uh, about the human condition. It's streaming now on Hulu. Uh, also on Hulu, something even darker. How about 1983's The King of Comedy? I could not believe this was streaming. Uh, Martin Scorsese and, and Robert De Niro, uh, maybe the most unsung of all their movies together. And uh, just an amazing film. It, if you liked Joker last year, that you know the the Joaquin Phoenix movie, The King of Comedy is like the blueprint for that movie. But it's better. The King of like Joker ripped off King of Comedy in so many ways. It's about Robert De Niro plays this guy who looks up to this talk show host played by Jerry Lewis, 
and gets so obsessed with him, like stalks him basically and like forms his own shows down in his basement for like a audience of cardboard cutouts and ends up kidnapping uh, Jerry Lewis's uh, host character. And um, it only gets darker from there. So it's a it's a really intense character picture. And um, it, it's got one of De Niro's best performances in it. So it, it's it's a really good Scorsese in the 80s to me is just so overlooked. But he was on point, man. He was just shooting and he was his aim was perfect in that decade. And the King of Comedy is another reason uh, why I think that's the case. So check it out now on Hulu. Don't miss your chance to stream this one in high def because it's one of those that not that easy to just find lying around at the store. So I think uh, if you, you got a chance to stream it with a subscription, check it out. It's on Hulu right now. I had the King of Comedy on my list for like a long, long time, many years before I was able to actually see it. And so when I see it streaming, I'm just like, oh, my God, it would have been so easy. I could have just turned it on. And so I'm jealous now that people who haven't seen it can watch it for the first time right here. Uh, On HBO Max, there's just, once again, like too much stuff to recommend. HBO Max is, is the best thing ever if you're a movie lover. Um, I just think that they do such a great job every month of giving you so much to watch. And yes, it's the most expensive of all the streaming services right now, but I feel like it's the one I would keep if I had to get rid of all uh, of all but one. I would keep HBO Max in a heartbeat because there's just so much there no matter what you're into. So something light for you. Let's go way back, man. Let's go to 1940, the Philadelphia story. This is, you might think like, I don't want to watch any movies. My stepsister broke my heart the other day because she said that she has no interest in watching anything that came out before the year 1980. And I don't, I don't know how someone says something like that and, and can like, it just was like, what? Like why 1980 of all I mean, there certainly have been great movies made since 1980. I mean, I just have told you about several of them. Uh, but oh my God, there's such a wealth of cinema made before that. And I mean, if you think 1980s old, the 1940 to you is going to sound like, God, I would never watch anything from 1940. What could it possibly, like, it's not going to be funny, it's going to be cheesy, but the Philadelphia story is none of that stuff. It is like the inventor of the modern uh, romantic comedy. It's got the lo- classic love triangle. You're talking about three of the greatest actors in history, uh, in Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grant and Jimmy Stewart going at it uh, in a script that is just flawless it's a joke uh, it's a line a minute it's it's a beautiful movie it's hilarious and it's so well acted and well told it's 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 perfect i mean it's a great movie and uh, if you're into journalism like i am there's a lot of fun to be had with the the business in the philadelphia story so give it give it a watch this is not a movie that has really aged at all other than the fact that it's black and white you know and they've got kind of the old you know mid-atlantic accent thing going but it's a it's such a good movie please do yourself a favor and watch this one the philadelphia story streaming on hbo max and bravo to them for putting movies like that out for casual audiences to to get into because you know i mean not everyone's going to take the time to subscribe to the criterion channel or something so this is great for people who might have signed up to watch like mortal Kombat and space jam and it's like oh the philadelphia story i've never seen that i've heard of that my grandmother talked about that movie or something and grandma was right the movie kicks ass it's good finally on hbo max something dark there's a plethora of them to pick from including a ton of the batman animated movies that they just dropped on there as part of warner owning dc 
Um, and by the way, those Batman animated movies, they're all good. If you want any recommendations from me, I would tell you to watch The Mask of the Phantasm and maybe The Return of the Joker first, and then the re- but they're all good. Like They're taken from some of the best comic stories ever. But anyway, the thing I'm going to recommend to you that's dark on HBO Max is 2007's Michael Clayton, George Clooney, maybe my favorite George Clooney movie, and he's had a few good ones if uh, I do say so. But I just think he is tremendous in this. Tilda Swinton is so good in this. Um, And it's just a great story. It's one of those endings that leaves you flat on the floor. And um, it's it's, it's just a a cool movie in every single way. I love it. It's a great part for Clooney as well. So Michael Clayton streaming now on HBO Max. Well, look at that. Look at the time. Once again, it's flown by. And that's the end of another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. We'll come back for our 99th edition next month in February and uh, tell you more about what's streaming in movies and in television and in music. Hope you enjoyed the show. If you do, rate, review, subscribe, please, my friend, wherever it is that you want to. Tell your friends. Tell your family. Spread the word about the Stream Police Podcast. We would greatly appreciate it. And uh, I want to thank Andy again for uh, giving us his insight into the world of streaming music, as always. You can reach out to him at sedlakjournal at gmail.com, S-E-D-L-A-K, journal at gmail.com. And I am at theclintdavis at gmail.com, T-H-E, Clint Davis at gmail. Hit us up. And maybe we'll talk about your questions on the next edition of the Stream Police Podcast. Until then, my friend, stream on. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowl and Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowl and Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at bowlandbranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.